1: And welcome to episode 536 of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. It's Monday. That's all I have to say about that. Um, I am so excited for y'all to listen to this interview that I did with Sister Solja. If you are not familiar with her, she is an activist, a musician, an author. She has written um, and is most well known for the book, The Coldest Winter Ever, which came out uh, 20 years ago and is so good if you have not read it. Um, she is back now with a sequel called Life After Death. Um, and it's been a long, it's been a long time coming for this one. But, you know, she has written a lot of books about some of the other characters that appear in The Coldest Winter Ever um, in the meantime. But, you know, as you'll hear in this um, Interview. She was she was very intentional in in waiting this long to have a sequel to the coldest winter ever. So, uh, yeah. So we talk about life after death. We talk about the coldest winter ever. We talk about oh, I had so much fun with this interview, and I'm I'm so grateful that I was able to have an opportunity to talk to her, um, because I I have been uh, a fan of of her books for a while now. If you want to get a hold of us. You can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. And you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Big Library Read starts today. So, if you are not familiar with Big Library Read, this is our global ebook club. And from now until April 19th, you can get the ebook of The Art of Taking It Easy by Dr. Brian King without any waitlist or holds from your library's Overdrive site. Um, Dr. Brian King is a psychologist and a comedian, and his book is a guide to embracing humor to reduce stress and live a happier, fuller life. And who doesn't need that, especially after this past year? Um, we will also, you know, if you are interested, you can go to biglibrary.com. and register for a live event, a virtual event that Adam and I will be doing with Dr. Brian King on April 13th at 1 p.m. Eastern. So the registration information for that is on biglibraryread.com. I think that's everything. We got all the social stuff out of the way. We got Big Library Read. It's Monday. I hope you have more coffee or at least stronger coffee than i have right now um yeah so with all that i hope you enjoy this interview i did with sister Solja on the professional book nerds podcast everyone this is jill and my guest today is sister Solja, activist musician and author of multiple novels including midnight moment of silence and the iconic the coldest winter ever she's also written for essence and the new yorker her latest book life after death picks up winter santiago's story once again and is out now thank you so much for coming on the podcast today thank you for having me So can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to Life After Death?
0: Okay, well, first of all, Life After Death is a sequel to The Coldest Winter Ever. The Coldest Winter Ever debuted in 1998, and uh, therefore the sequel is coming out, uh, is out now, 22 years later. (laughs) I know it's a long time, uh, but I uh, wrote seven novels in the interim, so I'm happy to bring life after death to the audience that really, uh, I would say, demanded. Uh, Winter <laughs> Santiago has returned by popular demand. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. you've you've
1: talked about in um in other interviews like you said people really wanted this book but you waited this long to talk about it because at the end of the coldest winter ever she's been incarcerated and you wanted readers to kind of feel
0: the absence that comes from that is that right oh that's that's definitely true i didn't want to make um light of the whole uh the whole drug dealing, uh, drug kingpin, drug addict uh, situation that has seized so many cities in the United States of America and really worldwide. And so the story the coldest winter ever essentially is the story of the daughter of a major hustler and hustling family that sells uh, drugs. And uh, it's her story, but at the end of her story, she gets incarcerated for a 15-year sentence, a mandatory minimum, meaning that she doesn't get out early for good behavior. She doesn't get any perks or anything. It's 15 mandatory years. So I wanted the audience of readers to understand that in our hoods, we call it the drug game, but clearly it is not a game. I wanted uh, the readers to understand that uh, we glorify it as you know a high a high living lifestyle, but it's not a lifestyle; it's a death style. So, what happens with drugs, as far as I'm concerned, you know, is that It affects not only the person who uses the drugs, it affects the people who sell the drugs, the women who love the men who sell the drugs or the men who love the women who sell the drugs. Uh, It affects the children whose parents are either addicted to the drug or selling the drug or incarcerated because of the drug. So it really is uh, a catastrophe. Um, and that's why I call it a death style. So I wanted to uh, make that clear that the Coldest Winter ever, even though it has wonderful characters and, you know, people are in love with Winter Santiago and all the women are in love with Midnight and and Ricky Santiago as well. Um, I just wanted to make it clear that um, this was a cautionary tale and drugs is a serious um scourge uh, yeah. to to our country and to our communities
1: yeah um as some of our listeners know i actually used to work as a librarian at a minimum security prison here in cleveland and i most of the men that i worked with um a lot of them were in on drug charges. And that's actually how I was first introduced to your books and read the coldest winter ever. It was, it was actually recommended to me by one of the, the incarcerated men who worked in the library. And I know that your books are so popular among um, the prison population. You even in the acknowledgments of moment of silence, sort of thank prison populations for reading your books. And as someone who just, you know, speaks out a lot about mass incarceration and the effect that is had on Black families and Black men and, you know, the racial injustice that happens in our criminal justice system, you know, I, I have to think it means a lot to you that your books are so popular among
0: people who are incarcerated. Yes, it definitely does. Um, I don't think that we can afford to have such a high number of men and women incarcerated in the United States and then have them be the forgotten population. I think just the fact that it's such a high concentration of men and women incarcerated in the United States means that uh, whoever is in power should have a vested interest in um, providing the resources, for those men and women to, uh, to actually correct themselves, to actually learn uh, a skill, a trade, or earn a degree, or, you know, have something so that when they are finally released at time served, that they can be useful for themselves, for their families, for their community. So, yes. I love that the prison population reads uh, my books. And the first book that the prison population embraced was nonfiction, was my book titled, No Disrespect. And it was really interesting to be a young woman writing a memoir and then to have the male prison population, the most uh, attentive readers of No Disrespect. And so what happened basically was the men in the prisons across the United States of America read the book in prison, gave it to their wives, daughters, sisters, mothers, grandmothers, and it became popular among the women after it already was popular among the men. That
1: I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Um, It's interesting you talked about how we should be working towards um, making sure that people who are incarcerated have access to resources and education because that's actually not what happens. And you would think that it does, but, and I saw this in the library a lot where certain books are not allowed inside, Um, you know, book banning and censorship happens and a lot of the books that were not allowed would have been things that would have educated, um, and you know, books on like technology or computers or something that would have given them uh, resources that they could have taken outside after they were released. And
0: that doesn't happen inside. Right. Well, if it doesn't happen, uh, then it means that it's another situation where we have people not doing their jobs. Mm-hmm. Because it's called a correctional facility that means right. that there should be some correction going on. It should not be the job of the institution to ban books, uh, to forbid knowledge, to block opportunities. It should be the job of the of the prison uh, to utilize the the budget uh, to make sure that these men and women, are able to correct themselves while serving their time, and go out and be an asset to the community instead of a burden.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You have said that you wrote, and you sort of talked about this, you wrote The Coldest Winter Ever as a a cautionary tale. Um, How do you see life after death?
0: How do I see life after death? Um,
1: Coldest Winter is a cautionary tale, yeah. How do you see life after death?
0: I see uh, life after death as the continuation of Winter Santiago's narration. I see the the book as being really 100% Winter and and very much her voice. And I think um, I think Winter is a character. Well, I know that Winter is a character that millions of young women from all around the world say, I am winter. When I go for my book signings in person, like when it's not COVID and not a pandemic Mm -hmm. and I'm in person, almost every reader that steps up to get their book autographed says the same thing. You know, sister soldier, I am winter. That's me. (laughs) How did you know my story? How did you (laughs) tell my story? You know, I feel like you had a camera in my bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I feel like you've been watching me, you know. <laughs> and so after the, the first two years after The Coldest Winter Ever was published, I was really amazed at the phenomenon of everybody feeling that this was their story. And almost every woman, hands down, saying, I am winter. So uh, when I look at life after death, it is winter's story but I know that it's also a story that is going to resonate in the souls of the reader as well because they're so heavily identified with Winter.
1: Was it hard to get back into writing as Winter Santiago after so much time?
0: Not at all. All of my characters, I say, you know, they live inside of me. (laughs) At at some point, they're, they're at some point they are in some position in my body, meaning mm-hmm. they're in my mind or my imagination or they're in my soul. Uh, I think about my characters often. I spend a lot of time thinking about the characters, the storytelling, the backstories, the histories. You know, I spend a lot of time projecting in the sense of thinking, well, what would Winter do? in this situation? Or what would poor Santiago do in this situation? Or what would Chiasa, you know, uh, do in this situation? And so my characters are very much a a part of my daily experience. And, um, you know, so for 22 years that I didn't write the sequel to The Coldest Winner Ever, I had winter, you know, inside of my body cursing me out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That I can see that. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of
0: sense. <laughs> Cursing me out, you know, telling me, telling me, oh, you think you're in, in charge. You're not in charge. I'm in charge.
1: <laughs> Would she get like jealous with all the Midnight books? You know, like that he's getting all these books and she's not.
0: She, I think she looks at Sister Soldier as someone who ruined Midnight. <laughs> <because> That's fair. <laughs> she, loves, she loves Midnight the Hustler. Yeah, and she, she romanticizes, she romanticizes him. And I think the fact that he was his, her father's right hand man uh, gave him, you know, so much more importance in her mind. So I think she's physically attractive. She's, she's, you know, mentally and emotionally attracted to Midnight, but she's also attracted to him because if her father chose him, he must be, you know, incredibly special and yeah. incredibly strong. So yeah, yeah. she curses me out, and <laughs> and and a lot of times, uh, I think she inspired the readers at certain book signings to have an insurrection and, and demand, sister soldier, what's going on? You know, how come we we can't get another Winter Santiago book? You know, okay, Midnight is cool, we love him, but you gave him three books. <laughs> <laughs> and, we can't get winter to have her second, you know, her sequel. And, uh, I would tell them the same thing that I'm saying today in 2021, that, uh, winter was incarcerated for a 15 year mandatory sentence. Yeah, I wanted you to feel the absence of her presence because that's how it feels for families whose loved ones get incarcerated. It means that someone whom you love has been erased from your daily visual experience, from your daily uh, ability to interact, to hear their voice, uh, you know, to share and exchange ideas. So I wanted the community to feel that because that's the consequences of drugs being uh, the main the mainstay in our hood economy.
1: Because it had been so long since the coldest winter ever. And because, you know, you have such big fans, you were waiting for this. Did you feel any pressure in writing Life After Death and and
0: bringing her back? No, I'm not the type of author that feels pressure, uh, to be honest with you. I, um, when I'm writing a book, no matter what book it is, uh, when I've chosen what novel I'm going to write, I've already thought about it. Uh, I've already felt about it. I've already imagined about it. And so my decisions are are made in my soul. They're not made based on you know the public. Because mm-hmm. if 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 I based my decisions on the public, I would have came out with the coldest winter ever in the year two thousand. Mm. You know. 20, you know, yeah. a, a long time ago, 21 years ago, I would have come out then if I was, if I was listening to what people said. Uh, when I first came out after the coldest whenever I came out uh, after a few years with midnight against the love story. When I came out with midnight against the love story, a lot of the readers, because, you know, coldest whenever has a couple of million readers, A lot of the readers got really pissed off because it wasn't about winter. So initially the reviews were really bad, but the reviews were not reviews of the midnight book. They were reviews of where is the winter Santiago story, (laughs) you know, anger. That's what it was about. Yeah. And then over time uh, the reviews changed completely and everyone loved midnight once they realized that this is the book that I'm putting out right now it's not the went to Santiago story because it's not time for that right now
1: yeah um I should say that there is also an audiobook of life after death which is very exciting it's narrated by actress Nia Long were you involved in uh, at all in the audiobook process
0: yeah well I was involved in selecting the person who who read the story? I, I thought it was a really important decision uh, when I first uh, when I first discussed it with the audio book department at Simon and Schuster. They gave me a list of like fifteen hmm. professional audiobook book readers uh, performers, and they asked me to choose. You know, from this list, and I said, "Listen." <clears throat> This list has no relationship to the coldest winter ever, or to life after death, because the person who reads this book, life after death, has got to be somebody who the hood loves. It's got to be somebody who went to Santiago would approve of. Mm, true. It has to be a voice that men love to hear. It has to be a a a woman who other women can admire. So this is how we arrived at Nia Long. You know, I took a poll, I asked around. I was already decided, but, you know, I wanted to hear, you know, what kind of reactions I would get from people when I brought up her name. And I really just concluded everybody loves Nia and it was perfect.
1: That's awesome. I like how you said it was somebody that Winter would have to approve of because you're right. She would she would have a lot of feelings about Sister Solja getting somebody else to, like, if you picked the wrong person, she, Winter would be upset by that.
0: Yeah, she would. Yeah. I mean, she would definitely.
1: Yeah. Um. And I have to say, like, you know, reading Life After Death, it, I'm not going to spoil anything, but right from that no. beginning, I won't spoil anything. I won't, but... I'm going to say, you know, like you dropped us back in that world and it is winter. And then just it's people are I think it's it's very unexpected, which is good. You don't want to sort of, you know, it's good to to present something that is unexpected and is going to surprise people.
0: Yeah, well, I am aiming when I'm writing writing. Uh, my novels, I'm, I'm aiming to make every word on the page explode in your soul. You know, I'm I'm going for that, you know, um, the opposite of stagnation. You know, I want your insides to churn. (laughs) I want your, your stomach even to turn and your soul to get aroused and your eyes to open. I want you to be a reader who cannot be interrupted by anyone else. I want that book to kind of just, you know, merge with you and you to lock everything else out and just get into the storytelling. Uh, You know, just get very, very close to the storytelling and allow it to happen to you. So I think Life After Death is that kind of book. It's, It's a book that you have to You know, get rid of everyone else and just allow it to happen to you.
1: I'm going to shift gears here slightly, but you grew up in the Bronx. And I'm wondering if you were a regular user of the New York Public Library when you were a kid.
0: Oh, yeah. I got my public library card when I became eligible, which was at five years young. My mother took me there uh, when I turned five. And it was like a birthday gift. (laughs) I got that library card. I loved books. My mother introduced me to books and reading even before I knew how to read. Because she used to read uh, stories to me before I would go to sleep. And I was so uh, overjoyed at just listening to my mother's voice you know, rising and falling and, you know, uh, t- changing from one character to the next. And her storytelling, her voice and, and just her reading aloud was actually more important than the story itself mm-hmm. when I was five, you know, when, when I was four, when I was three. I remember there was this book that she used to read uh, to me. It was called How Fletcher Was Hatched. It was about some dog that got, uh, that was born in a pink egg with black polka dots. It didn't make any sense at all. It didn't make any sense at all. But just to hear my mother just read it. And every night me saying, read how Fletcher was hatched, And she would say, why don't we try something else? You know, aren't you tired of that story? But really, I just like the way that she performed the story so she she started it all because she made me fall in love with uh reading aloud uh performance of of books and characters uh and she got me my library card and she made me just fall in love with reading because she used to tell me all the time look you 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 ask so many questions for a young Mm -hmm. lady I don't know the answers to all these questions that you're asking, but you can find them uh, in a book. So here's your library card and go answer the questions that you have because I cannot.
1: What kind of books did you like reading when you were little?
0: All different kinds of books. I was very um, inquisitive uh, and and i'll give you some examples i didn't m- uh, mind reading children's stories but i also liked the uh, scholastic readers they used to come in a box and you know they would have all these different topics and the first book that i read was about from scholastic reader was about harriet tubman and i thought you know that was incredible for me to learn that this was the history of you know millions of african people in the United States of America. And I, even though this was a very thin book, you know, uh, a very limited amount of pages, and I was a very young girl, uh, the presence of Harriet Tubman stayed in my, in my, in my soul really uh, for quite a long time. And I would think about what I had read over and over and over and over again over time. So yeah, I loved the library. I loved books and I loved answering questions. My grandmother, on the other hand, had a uh, subscription to uh, an encyclopedia collection. So, you know, this was a very long time ago and uh, you had to subscribe and you would get new additions to the encyclopedia. So I would uh, actually read uh, the encyclopedia Mm -hmm. you know I would just go to things that I either was interested in or things that I never knew and became curious about because it was the next topic on the next page I remember I had to go to the dentist so I started reading in my grandmother's uh, encyclopedia about about dentistry Mm -hmm and then when i got to the dentist's office and i'm in the chair i told the dentist i said don't worry i don't have a malocclusion <laughs> and he looked at me like like i was crazy said, i was I, I wasn't older than 7 he said uh he said how do you know about a malocclusion and i said oh i read about it in my grandmother's um my grandmother's encyclopedia and you know I learned about that and I learned about plaque and you know I I had known like everything about dentistry that you could learn from an encyclopedia before the my visit to the dentist so I had a a very interesting conversation with him and when he returned me to my mother he was like I'm a very interesting daughter you
1: Do you still read mostly nonfiction as an adult?
0: Yes, 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 yes. I am a lover of nonfiction. Uh, I love history. Um, and I love autobiographies Mm. and biographies, but mostly autobiographies. Um, I love, uh, descriptions of historical events, uh, with primary sources, you Mm -hmm. know, um, people that actually were there actually saw this or that, you know, I like to read books. They say there's a soldier that was in a particular war and he gives, you know, or she gives her account. I like stuff like that. So yeah, I'm a nonfiction reader, even though I am a fiction author.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask, you know, how, as someone who mostly reads nonfiction, how did you start writing novels?
0: Oh, because uh, it, writing was never in categories in my mind. I know that they're uh, in categories in the profession mm-hmm. uh, in the, and in, in the publishing industry, but I never even thought about it. Like, for example, I wrote No Disrespect, that was non-fiction. Uh, published in like 1993 94 um and then after I wrote that I just started writing the coldest whenever as mm-hmm. fiction but in my mind I didn't I didn't say in my mind at any point oh I'm gonna write fiction even though no disrespect was non-fiction
1: no nope, yeah. I
0: just thought of it as writing I'm I'm writing and this is what I'm writing about and so when I got to the, um, the kind of auction that you have where different publishers want to make a bid on the book, I got asked that question several times. And that's when it came to my attention that there was this big category switch that people felt I was doing. Why did I switch from nonfiction to fiction? But for me, it wasn't a switch. It was just writing.
1: And I think I've read that you sort of started getting writing when you were young, because you would write letters to your mom. Is that right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to. I used to, uh, well, I've always been told, you know, by adults when I was a child, you know, to be mindful of my tone of voice. And, you know, I have this voice, but i I guess people... Need to understand that you know this is my God given voice. <laughs> and mm-hmm. This is not a, it's not a put on. Mm-hmm. But sometimes people would get offended when I say something, or take it so much more seriously or dramatically when I said it. And it, we could be four or five children in a room and the other four children could say anything they wanted. But then when I would say something, it would be an issue. Uh-huh. So I, I realized is that when I want to uh, explain myself or when I want to question somebody who's not a peer, you know, they're, they're older than I am, That is so much easier for me to write a letter to the person because when they read it they cannot scold the letter uh-huh. for the tone of voice or for the word choices or or anything like that so I started off uh writing letters to my mother uh, so that she could sit alone with the letter and really without feeling uh like she was disrespected in any way just because Mm -hmm. I was a young person thinking and a young person talking and a a young person questioning. Uh, I thought it would be more effective just to write it on paper and then let her experience the letter and Mm -hmm. decide what she wanted to do after that.
1: Hmm. That's really lovely.
0: Thank you. You're
1: welcome. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you, but I really just have one question left, which is what do you hope readers take away from reading life after death?
0: Well, um, I probably should make this clear because I'm, I'm often given this, this question. The truth is I believe that uh, every great book is an intimate, intimate, personal relationship between the book and the reader, and I think that 10 people can read one of my novels, any one of my novels, including Life After Death, and get 10 different takeaways from what they read. I love that uh, what happens between a reader and a book Happens in the reader's mind, uh, in the reader's imagination, or in the reader's soul. I don't like the idea that the author dictates uh, or herds Mm -hmm. H H E R D S, herds the reader into one particular direction or another. So I can't really give you the answer to what I want them to take away. I want them to. Read every single word on every single page and feel, feel those words and think about those words uh, and take away whatever their soul uh, gives them to take away.
1: I love that answer. That's really great. Sister Solja, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to
0: talk to me today. I enjoyed. Thank you so much.